Welcome to Season 2 of the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. This is the podcast where experts come to discuss the problems oncologists, reference labs, and payers face as precision medicine grows and consider solutions for advancing the quality of patient-centered cancer care. Be sure to subscribe at precisionmedicinepodcast.com to get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox. Welcome to another episode of the Precision Medicine Podcast. I'm Jerome Madison, and today we have Dr. Luis Reyes, Medical Director and Chief of Hematology Oncology at Memorial Cancer Institute in South Florida and current president of FLASCO, Florida Society of Clinical Oncology. Dr. Reyes, thank you for being a guest on the podcast. No, thank you very much for the invitation, Jerome. It's a pleasure to share with you and with the audience about this important topic. Absolutely. Now, I understand that you were born and raised in Peru. Um, Give us a little bit about your upbringing and what attracted you to medicine and why specifically did you choose oncology? Yeah, I was born in Peru. My father was a doctor and and my father has lived uh, before in the United States and he went back to Peru. And He brought me when I was small and I thought that this was an amazing country. And when I decided to study medicine, I studied medicine originally in Peru. I I um, I liked the idea to practice in the the best medicine in the world. You know, that's why I came to America uh, to learn as much as I can and to and to use all of these resources that we have to practice uh, medicine. And uh, I became oncologist because it's very challenging, as um, we discussed before. Uh, things change all the time. We have new medications, and the fight is a very difficult fight. So intellectually, you know, it's your whole life dedicated to a cause that is worth to to live for, and uh, that's why I choose oncology. And um, I I am involved in the field of lung cancer mainly, and uh, I have decided to dedicate the rest of my life to fight lung cancer and save as many patients as we can, you know, through research, clinical trials, education, advocacy, everything that we can do for our patients, you know? Yeah. Ten years ago, I mean, treating lung cancer um, in your armorarium of what you had to treat patients with was very different than it is today. How has the emergence of next-generation sequencing testing changed your approach to lung cancer treatment? It's amazing because um, we used to use empirical chemotherapy when I started. I started practicing lung cancer in 2001. And that was very frustrating because, as you know, the response rates are low, 30% maybe of the patients. And the survival is like a year. And, uh, And we didn't have anything better. So the first 10 years were very difficult. We were only able to discover Bevacizumab the monoclonal antibody, anti-VEGF. And that really didn't make a lot of difference either, but at least now our patients were able to maybe live, some of them, more than a year. And that is why next-generation sequencing is a revolution because now we are able to customize the treatment and do a personalized medicine because we know what is the driver uh, for the tumor. So now we are going to find the treatment, the inhibitor for that driver, and that is why it's becoming fascinating because now we really feel more useful and I now really feel that we can impact the natural history of the disease of the patient 
And that is why uh, next generation sequencing has been so fascinating for us. Yeah, lung cancer has become uh, the envy uh, of other diseases because of the number of targets that they're finding, uh, druggable targets that they're able to find for lung cancer patient. Um, there is an NCCN biomarker compendia, but we still hear a lot about the lack of testing. What do you think the adoption rate for uh, physicians has been for the recommended markers as precision medicine has grown? Well, if you see the statistics, you know, uh, they're not very good because um depends how you do it. For example, everybody agrees that uh, any new lung cancer patient needs to be tested, okay? But this is a debate if uh, how many times you're going to test it. To give you an example, uh, we started doing testing by tissue. We do NGS in tissue, and you know that... Uh, Probably in America or any part of the world, 20% of the times the tissue is not enough. The sample is insufficient. Okay, so, so then you took away uh, 20% of the candidates to get precision medicine. So as a doctor, then you have to make a decision. You say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you have bad luck. You are in the 20% that you will never have a molecular marker. Or you can do the extra mile and say, no, you know, I have now liquid biopsy. I can do NGS in liquid biopsy, so I will test this older 20% with NGS. Mm-hmm. So there is a major difference in, in both situations because if you are only going to test 80%, um, you are living uh, without testing more than 40,000 lung cancer patients in America because, you know, we, are a lot, they, we have a lot of lung cancer patients, 225,000 a year. So that is why, for example, a lot of doctors don't do the extra mile. They, they, they say, okay, I, 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 I checked the box, I did the NGS, and I'm not going to be sending a liquid biopsy when I can do chemoimmuno tomorrow. And the patient say, oh, yes, because the poor patient, you know, as an average, sometimes patients spend 90 days from the day that they notice that the cough that they have is important to the day that they come to the medical oncology office. So when you tell the patient, oh, don't worry, now your NGS is negative, I want to send a liquid biopsy, come back in two more weeks, and the patient is like, you know, it's already ready to start treatment the same day. Mm-hmm. That is why uh, liquid biopsy, NGS by liquid biopsy, is a very, very good option because even waiting for the tissue is a four-week waiting. And that is why the, the success of chemoimmuno is not helping us because since we have chemoimmuno available, um, some patients say, but why want you to wait four weeks? And how about if in four weeks you tell me, oh, I'm sorry, there, is, there was not enough tissue. You, we only wasted four weeks. I need to do another biopsy and wait another four weeks. So I need to do a liquid biopsy and wait two more weeks. So that is why um, um, I, I, I think uh, there, there is a need to, to be more aggressive in... Um, in uh, doing NGS for new patients, especially lung cancer, maybe one solution is to do liquid biopsy in everybody and tissue in the ones that uh, you can. The other problem with tissue also is that, of course, 80% of the time, you you can get a, 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 a diagnosis, but a lot of times, for example, I'm in a tertiary center, so meaning that a lot of the patients come from other facilities yeah, uh, and then I have to order a tissue NGS in a facility that is not mine. 
So the, the pathology technician in the other facility gets an order from me to submit tissue to one of the vendors. And the technician may say, oh, I don't know who is right. Maybe I will do tomorrow. I'm busy today. I'll do it in three days from today. You know, oh, I'm overwhelmed. I'll do next week. Wow. And I don't have any pull, any power to obligate the technician to do this because it's not my hospital, it's not my healthcare system. So that is why that's another disadvantage of tissue. If you practice in a big center, a lot of these samples will be coming from other centers that are not yours. So you, you, so that's why the delay may be more than four or five weeks. Yeah, understood. You, you mentioned a lot of challenges, but despite those challenges, it seems that every week, there are significant findings or reports from studies that show patient improvement, um, new drug indications or combos or new discoveries. So um, we asked Dr. Reyes to come on and, and share with us what he feels were some of the most significant developments in precision medicine for lung cancer patients over the last year. So um, what are the highlights over the last year that you think are significant for patients and uh, providers to know about? Oh, there are, there are a lot, you know, let me see. Uh, for example, we can talk about the red inhibitors. You know, uh, the red uh, is a fusion, you know, it's a red RET is a genetic aberration that uh, we didn't have a drug until this year. And um, it's agnostic because you can have red fusions uh, in lung cancer. You can have red fusions in medullary thyroid cancer, but also there are red fusions in pancreas cancer, colon cancer, and other cancers. So for the last four or five years, we have been working uh, with uh, developing two drugs for, um, for these uh, red fusions. And uh, we were very happy that uh, this year, both drugs got FDA approval. Um, the Loxo-292 selpercatinib got approved for lung and medullary thyroid cancer. And Blue, uh, the other company, Blue, uh, had the drug approved, uh, Praseltanib, for uh, lung cancer and hopefully soon for medullary thyroid cancer too. So this is a very important topic because um, red is present in maybe some people say, oh, it's only 1% or 2% of the lung cancers. Yes, but we go back to the same thing. You know, we have 225,000 new lung cancers a year. So this drug may be uh, important for some thousand, um, uh, some uh, several thousand patients, you know. Plus, if you add the thyroid, and we still are, uh, we, I'm still having the trial open for the cohorts that are GI. So we're still trying to find if it works for pancreas and colon. So these are very, that's why this is a very exciting uh, moment that we have been able to add a, another genetic aberration to the list uh, that we are targeting, you know. Um, another uh, interesting development for me is the fact that, um, you know, we, we have been attempting to target KRAS for many, many years because KRAS is a very common a mutation in lung cancer and we were unsuccessful. And we didn't understand why we were unsuccessful. You know, we had tried several times in the last uh, 10 years to target KRAS. But then we realized that KRAS is not only one genetic aberration. We realized that there are many subtypes of uh, KRAS uh, genetic uh, anormalities and not all of them behave the same. So that is why in the last years, uh, we start to do research for a specific 
uh, subtypes of Keras. And uh, for example, for the Keras G12C, we have a drug developed by Amgen that now is very promissory. I don't know if it will ever get approved or not because we are only talking about the phase one and two. But the fact that at least now we have a drug that gives a response rate of at least 30% to 30 to 40% as it was presented in the last ESMO, for example, last month, is becoming very uh, exciting because, as I said, uh, this genetic aberration is very common. And, uh, and we need to discover also uh, inhibitors for common genetic aberrations because, you know, most of the inhibitors that we have now for red NTRAC Rose um, are for very, very uncommon. You know, the, all of them are in the 1%. So we need to really make a home run and discover uh, a drug for um, more common, um, uh, uh, genetic aberrations are more common. That's why I think I'm very excited that maybe that we have now the potential to have a new agent, even if, if the response rate is low, you can say maybe 30%, 40%, but it's better than zero. It's better than put all of these patients on chemo. And you can still put them on chemo. Once that they fail the agent and become resistant, they can still have the current benefit today that is having chemoimmuno. So that is why we are adding um, another option for the patients, you know. And then uh, another important development uh, this year uh, in precision medicine maybe is the fact that... Uh, you know, in lung cancer, that uh, we can use now a combo, ipinivo, ipilimumab and nivolumab, uh, without chemo, no? This is the first time that in lung cancer we uh, we can use in frontline uh, uh, a combination for lung cancer that doesn't need chemo. Because if you remember, we are using checkpoint inhibitors. We have three checkpoint inhibitors approved by FDA for second line, third line, fourth line. But we incorporated all of the checkpoint inhibitors in the front line with the help of chemo. And uh, but this year, finally, we have enough data that if the patients have PDL1 more than 1% as a biomarker, they can be eligible for epineo. So that is very exciting too, because it's an option maybe for, for, for patients that uh, they don't have a large tumor burden. Uh, maybe they are senior. You know, I, I'm, I work in Florida. I I am treating with Ipiniwa, 85-year-old, 86-year-old. Maybe they, they, for them it's not easy to take chemo, even if it's a short chemo, because, you know, most of the combos that use chemo, uh, chemo with immuno are only four, 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 four cycles of chemo. But that's why uh, this Ipiniwa is a, is a very interesting development. Um, that we were waiting, and uh, now that's another option for us. Um, the other exciting topic uh, uh, is ALK. And uh, first of all, there was a publication in the Journal of Thoracic Oncology from the group of uh, Denver, Colorado. You know, they have been developing uh, inhibitors and doing research for ALK for a long time. And uh, they published the first 100 patients that they treated with ALK inhibitors. It's only a retrospective publication. You can say, oh, that's, that's not very important. But it's amazing to me to discover that the median survival for these ALK patients is 82 months, seven years. Mm -hmm. It's a stage four lung cancer patient, patients that are living now seven years. Remember wow. after this conversation saying that all my patients live one year or less. This is now, that's why, going back to what you were mentioning before, it's imperative 
that if somebody is ALK, you need to discover that because, you know, that patient can be alive seven years. And if you don't do the effort with the proper NGS, you are going to deny this patient that's, that, that survival because you don't find the, the ALK aberration. So that is why it's very important, uh, you know, that uh, we uh, we find the proper genetic aberration. So in the same field, FALK, in ESMO, finally we have uh, data that uh, lorlatinib, the last ALK inhibitor, now can be used in frontline because it's superior than crisotinib, that is the like the standard uh, of care for many years. It was the standard of care because it was the first ALK approved. So we have data because, you know, lorlatinib, we have very good data in the last three years. With, with the lorlatinib, you pretty much can rescue any patient that has failed another ALK inhibitor. But we didn't have data in frontline, and now we are waiting for FDA approval because we don't have approval. Also, in the world alone this year, we have an, an, another ALK inhibitor called ensartinib, and uh, that also in, in the data presented in the Presidential Symposium of World Lung show how he beats uh, crisotinib with a much better progression-free survival. And uh, so we have another option with ensartinib uh, for these patients. Also, we are waiting for the FDA approval. But it's exciting because, you know, these two agents are adding to the armamentarium that we have for ALK. So now we have six agents approved and there are still more coming, you know. But these are four four major things that uh, I think are being important in the lung cancer in precision medicine that I remember this year, you know. The Precision Medicine Podcast will continue right after this. With the explosion of new data and biomarkers in lung cancer today, how can healthcare professionals keep pace to know which genes will best inform treatment decisions? Trapello knows. Trapello is the first single technology platform used by oncologists, labs, and payers to resolve the complexities of precision medicine in real time. Trapello knows which patients to test and when. It knows which tests are most appropriate, which labs are preferred, and which tests are most likely to be reimbursed. Visit trapellohealth.com to learn how you can give cancer patients the most appropriate, evidence-based options when time matters most. 2020 has been an, an incredible year in, in so many facets. I mentioned in the intro that you are the current president of the Florida Society of Clinical Oncology. Um, you know, with the challenges with late diagnosis of lung cancer, Dr. Reyes, how has kind of this whole COVID, you know, shutdown, quarantine uh, affected the practice of cancer care specifically for lung cancer patients? This has been terrible because uh, this morning um, I was telling you um, I was doing some interviews. I had eight interviews with TV stations. Because, as, as I don't know if you're aware, but the, um, in August 6, there was a JAMA Oncology article that shows that uh, uh, there has been a decrease 46% in the number of diagnoses of uh, six more common cancers in the United States. And nobody's happy because we're not curing cancer. You know, normally this will be great news. It's because we know that we're not going to cure all the cancers yet. So we are diagnosing this year 46% less patients than we expected. 
There is also um, a, a report of the uh, COVID oncology network that they say the number may be as high as 70%. Um, the National Cancer Institute director was interviewed about this, and he said that if we are delaying cancer diagnosis, for example, in the case of breast and colon, that can mean 10,000 more people dying in the next 10 years because we are going to diagnose more people in the late stage instead of early stage. So instead of going for cure, they're going for palliative treatment. So that is why this is very important. And the same is happening in, in England, in the uh, UK. Um, in this specific case of lung cancer in UK, they say that uh, probably they are going to have 1,300 more lung cancer deaths due wow. to the delays of the COVID. So that is why we're very worried about this. We're doing um, a campaign at the national level with ASCO and all the patient advocate uh, large groups and at the local level with FLASCO. Uh, that's why we're doing this campaign in all the TV, radios, the stations to tell the patients, please come for your checkups, mammogram, lung cancer screening, colonoscopy, PSA. Also, the survivors, you know, when the COVID came, uh, the first uh, group that is not essential to be in the cancer center are the survivors because they're already cured and probably all of them are cured, you know. But So we told all the survivors, oh, don't worry, don't come for your checkups because this is going to be full of patients that are on chemo and we don't need more people in the room, you know. You, you can, if somebody gets COVID, it's mm -hmm. going to be terrible. So a lot of the survivors are postponing his follow-up CAT scan, his follow-up colonoscopy, his follow-up x-rays, uh, his follow-up blood tests. So that's why some of them, the cancer are, may return, and if we don't find it early, may, may be too late when we find it. That's why um, my cancer center, Memorial Healthcare System, and uh, all the other local centers in South Florida, like University of Miami, Jackson Memorial, all of us are doing commercials in TV, asking the patients to please come back. Uh, it's safe here. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, now that we are fully open, the patients believe that if they come to the office, they can get COVID here. But uh, they don't mind to go for a restaurant, you know. And uh, <laughs> there was a study. Uh, I love restaurants, believe me. I'm going to restaurants now because in Florida, everything is open. But the... Uh, the, the, the chances to get infected in a restaurant is probably higher than the chances to get in, in, in the office because here in the office we use shields, face masks, uh, hand sanitizers, social... You know, we're very strict for social distancing. We don't allow relatives of the patients in the office. We don't allow relatives of the patients in the hospital. So this is the safest place to come now. That's why we cannot keep delaying the diagnosis of cancer. Yeah. Thank you for that intimate look. Uh... Uh, behind the curtain as to what the physicians are having to do to to drive care for patients. You're obviously very passionate about mentoring and educating physicians as well as patients. And um, you do a significant amount of work in Latin American or Latin countries across the world in Central South America. Um, can you tell us about some of your efforts and your conferences that you help lead to improve lung care in those countries? Yes, uh, the problem that we have in Latin America is that um, there are the, we have what we call middle-income countries or low-income countries. And that, of course, puts them on great disadvantage because the 
all the new developments that we have been discussing, for example, for precision medicine, they take an extra one, two or three years to arrive there. And even if they arrive there, you can understand the cost of all of these treatments make it really, really difficult to practice uh, the same level of medicine over there than here. But at the same time, there is a great need in education and advocacy. So that is why um, we cannot fix the economic uh, situation of these countries, but we can influence in the education of the doctors and the patients and the advocacy. So that is why I'm very proud to that we have a lot of um, oncologists in Latin America that are very well trained. And uh, one of the reasons is because we interact with them constantly. We publish with them constantly. We are trying to be sure that they know as much as we know here. And, and they learn what, what are the latest developments um, here in the United States or in Europe. That's why we do a lot of educational events. And I work with, uh, for example, with ASCO. We have an international uh, group. And uh, we, we do uh, seminars in Latin America, the same as we do in Africa or in India or in Asia, to try to elevate the level of oncologists. With the ISLC, International Association of Lung Cancer, same thing. We even have an annual or biannual um, Latin American meeting where we present the latest in lung cancer care in the world for Latin America and, uh, and is well attended. And, um, and, uh, and sometimes we also work with ESMO that uh, trying to in improve the training for new researchers and young uh, people in Latin America. And we do seminars over there. Um, so that's why uh, we, we are trying to, to do as many initiatives to to try to help um, our oncologists in Latin America be well-trained and, uh, and be able to, to one day, hopefully, to practice the best medicine and as we practice here. Um, but still a, a big limitation is the fact that, as I said, the economic situation makes it difficult sometimes the access to uh, NGS, for example, or the access to to new, new drugs, no? Yeah. I listened to your conversation with Dr. Jack West on the Westwinds podcast. And uh, you spoke about your wife is an infectious disease doctor who runs the, the AIDS program, I believe, at the University of Miami. Yes, in pediatrics only. Yeah. Um, but over that time, since she's been running the program, you know, AIDS has become a chronic disease, right? And she's, she's losing patients, which is fantastic. Do you see a future for lung cancer with the number of, of targets and and the way that liquid biopsy extends the benefits of precision medicine, um, do you see a possibility for lung cancers to become uh, a chronic disease of some sort? Yes, I think um, I give you the example of the ALK, no? These ALK patients, according to this publication from Colorado, I quote, they live seven, seven years now. And uh, that's, the, that's the medium. So that meaning that some patients may live longer than that. My, I, I have, I have my own ALK and ROS1 patients that are alive now ten years. Wow! And that's, um, that's why we, thanks to precision medicine, we really need to transform or convert lung cancer in a chronic disease. Um, for example, with immunotherapy, I, if you see the presentation of Dr. Julie Bremer before in ASCO. Um, you see the presentations from UCLA with atezolizumab uh, and the presentations uh, also for pembrolizumab. 
uh, we have now five-year survivors. And these five-year survivors are with no treatment. So I personally have in my cancer center around 12 people that we give immunotherapy for two years, no, according to pretty much our standard. And then we put them under observation, waiting for them to relapse to start another modality. And they have not relapsed yet. So that's why it's amazing, you know, and uh, we were using target therapy or immunotherapy, but we didn't thought that we may cure people. So at least we're making a, we're, this disease a chronic condition because if my patients one day relapse, uh, they are being already enjoying two or three years without any treatment. So if they even relapse, we can start like a, again, you know, three years without any treatment, you will start from, from you start clean now. Or maybe we're curing them, you know. And, uh, these uh, patients, for example, with, if, you, you, if you get pembrolizumab because your PDL1 is more than 50%, it's amazing that uh, like half of the patients are alive five years. No, maybe maybe these half of the patients are cured. Mm-hmm. So that, that's why um, I'm very, very optimistic now that uh, at least we're making this a chronic condition. Not for everybody, unfortunately, yet because we need to find drugs for the targets that we already have identified. We have identified targets for 70% probably of the of the lung cancers, but we don't have drugs for 70%, as you understand. And then uh, and we also need to improve the use of immuno, you know. We are using immunotherapy as much amazing as it is empirically, really, you know. Uh, we are giving immunotherapy to pretty much everybody, and then we sort the patients, no? The ones that respond, they continue immunotherapy. The ones that don't respond, we take them out. With the help of the PDL one we are trying to figure it out, which ones are going to respond. That's why um, now we are dividing the patients in PD-1 positive or no, so, so they can get treatment. But if you are giving immunotherapy with chemo, pretty much doesn't matter what is your PD-1. You know, everybody gets a chemo immunocomo. So that's why uh, there is, uh, we need really to find a better biomarker for immunotherapy to really do a better precision medicine. Um, for the last three, four years, we have a lot of expectations in the TMB, in the tumor mutation burden. But as you know, there is no harmonization yet. Everybody does their own TMB the way that they want. And uh, doesn't seem that they are compatible with each other. Even the definitions of high or low TMB are very different from many different vendors. <laughs> so that's why this uh, harmonization project that is ongoing, is, it has to give us an answer. So hopefully we, we can agree what's TMB, how to measure, and what is high, what's low. We'll be able to divide the patients better and and use a more accurate way, you know, because immunotherapy is very expensive too, you know, and and why to put people on side effects if, if they are not going to to benefit from the drug. So that's why uh, uh, this is very important. And I'm talking about uh, discoveries. Uh, I don't know if you heard, but uh, in the last two years, we have a lot of publications about STK11 and and, uh, and KIP. And uh, maybe it's time for us to discover genes that can indicate us that immunotherapy is not going to work. They are, they are very valuable because at least we know who is in which case the immunotherapy is going to work, in which case it's not going to work. So we accurate 
reserved immunotherapy in the cases to work, you know. I know that the data with STK11 is still controversial, but at least it gives us an idea that discovering something that, like the PDL1 or TMB, that tells us if it's going to work is so important as discovering something that can tell me that the immunotherapy is not going to work because in that way we can be a more accurate, we can do a better precision medicine with the patients. Yeah. Dr. Luis Reyes, Medical Director, Chief of Hematology and Oncology at the Memorial Cancer Institute in South Florida, and the current president of FLASCO, Florida Society of Clinical Oncology. Um, Dr. Reyes, if anybody wants to get in touch with you on Twitter or social media, do you have a platform where they can reach out to you? Yeah, my, my Twitter handling is ResRise1. And, you know, I am in LinkedIn. And, uh, yeah, uh, it's very easy to get in contact with me. Uh, Memorial Healthcare System, I, I am the medical director here, is the third largest uh, healthcare system in America that is public. So that's why uh, I'm very easy to find. <laughs> and you can always go to precisionmedicinepodcast.com and you can find his social media handles and a way to connect with him there. Now, before we let you go, one very important question, uh, since you, you being from Peru, uh, what's better? American football or soccer with football <laughs> around the world? Okay, so the Super Bowl is uh, watched by 150 million, <laughs> no? Right. Yeah, the final of the soccer um, World Cup is watched by 1.5 billion. It's, it's not that it's better. It's only more people watch soccer. Yeah, well, you, once you get out of the United States, I guess it really is no contest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, um, yeah. I don't think it's, there's no reason for for other countries not to learn about football. I guess it's a younger sport than soccer, you know. Well, being an, an ex uh, football athlete, um, my body uh, says I should have chosen soccer. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's true. There is, uh, yeah, that's important. Dr. Reyes, we really appreciate you giving us updates on the fast-moving world of precision medicine and lung cancers, and thank you for being a great guest on the Precision Medicine Podcast. No, thank you very much for what you're doing, Jerome. This is extremely important for the doctors, for the patients. Uh, you know, I think education is the key uh, to move forward the needle in the fight against uh, cancer. You've been listening to the Precision Medicine Podcast, sponsored by Trapello. Trapello is the first clinical decision support tool to align the interests of oncologists, labs, and payers to give patients the best chance at beating cancer. To learn more, visit gettrapello.com. To subscribe to the podcast or download transcripts of any episode, visit precisionmedicinepodcast.com. We invite you to join the conversation on social media. You can find us on Twitter at PMP by Trapello or on LinkedIn at the Intervention Insights company page. If you know someone who would enjoy the Precision Medicine Podcast, please share it. They'll thank you, and so will we. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Mm-hmm.